We are going to finish Romans 11 this morning. Some of you may be very pleased about that, to move into Romans chapter 12, which is full of some really rich and good things. Uh, Romans chapter nine, nine, chapters 9 to 11 is this you know, strong section about the history of Israel and redemption and, its, uh, and how that relates to the New Testament and to the church. And so we've reached now this last section, and really in this section we're going to We're going to review a couple of those things, that's what Paul does, but I want us to see, I've called the sermon this morning, is uh, to God be the glory. And that's the point of Romans 9 to 11, and it's the point of what Paul is doing, and of God's giving it to us and revealing it to us. And so what we get this morning, and what we've been getting in Romans 11, whether we've known it or not, is a glimpse of God Himself, the person and the work and the ways of God. So let's read it this morning. We'll finish the reading in uh, Romans 11, verses 25 to 36. Hear the Word of God. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Unaware there is the word ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery, brothers. I want you to understand it. A, A partial hardening has come on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be My covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom And the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people. Father, we are here to know you and to love you and to worship you. And we pray now that even in the preaching of a sermon, in the words of this text, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would bring us to our knees before you in your sovereign glory, and that we would worship you. Father, help us to understand, but more than that, help us to be shaped and changed and humbled and brought to worship by the truth and the power of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, Peter writes this, and he says, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. 
There's a lot there. Peter calling Paul's letters, you know, the Scriptures, and understanding Peter being aware of Paul's letters and the, and the wisdom that God has given him. But he acknowledges, and I find it helpful, even as we have studied in the book of Romans, it, Peter here acknowledges there are some things in them that are hard to understand. But they are the Scripture, and it is according to the wisdom that God gave them to Paul, that Paul gives them to us. And it's not surprising to me if the explanation is we have been going through Romans 9-11, to which is arguably some of the most difficult things in the New Testament. And as we've walked through 9-11, to it's really not surprising that Paul's explanation of the mind and the ways of God in history and in salvation are challenging. It's not, it shouldn't be surprising to us if they're unchallenging. The mind and the purposes of the infinite and uncreated God in His ways in history, and that if there is a bit of work to be done to fully follow and to understand what He is trying to tell us about His will and His ways. In fact, I think it would be problematic if we found uh, the thoughts and the mind and the ways of God perfectly understandable and easy. Just the way I would have done it. Right? That's, that's the way I think about it. It's just the way I would have done it. There's probably a problem if you interpret all of the Scripture as the way you would think and the way you would do it. There's probably some kind of problem in the way we're understanding it. Because the Scripture says that His ways are higher than our ways. But to understand these, even these difficult things, Paul's explaining them to us, right? Some of the most difficult things to understand in the Scripture, but God must think it's important because here it is. And here it is in the heart of the book of Romans. Right? He has been building up to it, now he's going to move into applying it and the rest of it, but, but God gave it to us. And so it is timely in verse 25 when Paul says that he wants us to understand Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. I don't want you to, not, to be in a place of not understanding what God is doing and how He's doing it. Right? I don't want you to be ignorant. Paul's saying it, but, but God is saying it. Right? This is His word. Right? And so God is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about Romans 9-11. to I want you to understand this mystery. And so he puts it here, and we take the time to preach through it and to walk through it. And he warns us that ignorance leads to pride. Right? Doesn't he say, lest you be wise in your own sight? I don't want you to be ignorant. Right? That being proud, being full of pride, is part of the, the fruit of our ignorance when we don't understand what God is doing, or rather that we fully think without Romans 9-11, to we've got it figured out. Right? That we have just figured out what God is doing. There's a certain pride that is that we are at risk of when we think we have God all figured out. Well, let me just point to three ways that we can be wise in our own eyes. And I think all three come from this text, definitely from Romans 9 to 11. And it's some of the pride that he's warning us against to be wise in our own eyes. And he's saying that the danger is, lest you be wise in your own eyes, the danger is if we do not understand God's sovereignty in what God is doing, what God has been doing in Israel, what God is doing in the church, how these things relate, how God has, has worked in the New Testament times with Israel being cut off, much of it, and the Gentiles coming in in mass, coming to the faith. 
Three different ways I think we can be wise in our own eyes concerning these things. And number one is that we can think more highly of ourselves in comparison to other people. And that is Paul's concern here, definitely, in the church. And, and it's hard for us to appreciate the tensions surrounding this moment in history when Israel's Messiah has come, there is a mass believing in him. We see in Pentecost and in the days that follow, thousands, 5,000, 3,000, they're come to faith in Christ. And so we see this division in Israel, in, in the Jewish community. There's a number that have come to faith and believe, but so many more don't believe. And this division is taking place between those who've embraced Messiah and those who haven't. And, and then the Gentiles pouring in. And for the unbelieving Jews, how they see that and understand that, or even the believing Jews, how they understand that, but even more so, how Gentiles, and that's his concern in this text, is how the Gentiles now who are making up the mass of the church, of God's chosen people, those who are of the faith, and the Gentiles come in, and there is a danger. In fact, he says in verse 18, he's saying to the Gentiles, do not be arrogant. He says it again in verse 20, do not become proud, but fear. And then he says it again here in verse 25, lest you become wise in your own eyes, right? And you look down on someone else who's not experiencing the blessing right now. This is always a danger in the church, and we do it, whether we look down on other Christian denominations, whether we look down on the lost and those who who don't see what we see because God has opened our eyes. And there, there can be a spiritual pride, which is the worst kind of pride, in the church. Whether we look down on each other, or whether we're looking down on the world, God says there's no room for any of it. Part of the reason there's no room for it in the church is that there are no distinctions in the church. This is Galatians 3, 28 and 29, which in some ways summarizes Romans 9 to 11. There's neither Jew nor Greek. So many people that I talk to just don't believe that sentence. <laughs> Where he says there's, there's not Jew nor Greek anymore. The distinction has been broken down. We read Ephesians 2 where it says that, that there had been these two and one was far off and one was near and then God worked by His grace and those who were far off were brought near and it's created one new man in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That distinction to look down, either the Jews, and we see it, when you read the New Testament, it's the Jews looking down on the Gentiles quite a bit. And then you see as you read on in the letters, Gentiles were looking down on Jews. And what Paul is saying is this is ridiculous, you guys. Do not be proud. Do not be arrogant. This is God's grace, and God's grace only. And he has broken down the divisions. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no rich and poor. There's neither male or female. There's neither Jew or Gentile or Scythian or barbarian or whatever the, the, the distinctions are. There are no distinctions in Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, so you are Abraham's offspring, Israel, the benefit or the the inheritance of Israel, heirs, the beneficiaries, the heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise to Abraham, to Israel. All these distinctions being abolished in Christ. There's one household of faith. There's no room for pride. And all who are in are heirs of the promise that is ours in Christ. And so, 
Don't think more highly of yourselves in comparison to others. We can become wise in our own eyes that, that we have done something, which is the second one that we were just talking about, and we're tempted to be wise in our own eyes, thinking that we're able to figure God out. We don't need Romans 9 to 11, or it's too much work, or I don't want to bother with it, or it's been tedious to kind of walk through all the stuff that God is saying in there, right? I, because what, do we not need his revelation to tell us what he is doing? Do we? There are many folks who I know when I start to do this, oh, you're just splitting hairs. I got to figure it out. It works like this. I'm like, well, that's not what it says. What you're saying is not what it says. Right? And, and to be wise in our own eyes instead of, in other words, that we judge the Scriptures or we're dismissive of the Scriptures in a way rather than letting the Scriptures judge us and to shape us. And we decide what God is like rather than letting God tell us what God is like. We can become wise in our own eyes thinking we can, you know, in fact, in many ways, I think we read Scriptures like this and we want God to conform to our way of thinking. We'll read it and say, well, it can't mean that because it doesn't conform to what I think it should say. There's neither Jew nor Greek. That doesn't conform to my way of thinking. There is Jew or Greek. And we just, rather than letting it judge us and conforming our minds to its truth, the danger is we're wiser in our own eyes. And so Romans 9, if you remember back there, verses 20 and 21, God pushes back and says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right? Over the clay, the potter is sovereign over the clay. Utterly. Just as he says here, has the potter no right to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? And so God pushes back, calling us to humbly submit to His Word, humbly submit to His ways, to humbly submit to what He is revealing and telling us about Himself. The only way to know anything about God is if He tells us. That's true of each other. I've used that illustration before, that if you want to get to know me, you know, you can look at me and make some judgments, but we've been told about judging books by their cover. There's only so much you can, if you want to know me, I'm going to have to tell you about me. When a couple starts dating, what's the first thing they do? They spend hours talking to each other, revealing their history and who they are and I work with college kids, and it was one of these things all the time. Yeah, we were in her room for like four hours, you know, just talking. I'm like, well, anyway, that's another thing. You were in her room? Like, maybe you should have been somewhere else. That's part of the problem. But, but the hours that they invest revealing themselves to each other, which is the only way we can know each other. I know about you what you want me to know for the most part. And you know about me. There are things, ramble, ramble. Point is, you can't figure God out. If I can't even figure you out apart from your revelation, how are you going to figure out what God is like? The infinite, uncreated one who is infinitely removed from us in his being, in his mind, in the creating of the universes. We become wise in our own eyes when we think we can figure him out. When we compare ourselves to others. And finally, we're tempted to be wise in our own minds, in our own eyes, thinking we're the ground of our own salvation. And there, there is this that goes on in the church too, that in terms of why it is that I'm in, or once I'm in, that I can look down on those that are out, but there is some kind of pride that rises in us. And the way that we look at the world sometimes and talk about them and us in the sense that I'm better 
that we are somehow better, that we are somehow deserved, or we have somehow earned, or we have somehow, the Gentiles would go grow proud against the Jews. It's somehow it's their time, and they see, they see the Messiah, and they can't see their own Messiah. And the world is gathering to this Jewish Messiah. And there's room, there's this pride that can take place in us when we think it depends on, on us, on our will, on our wisdom, on our seeing. But how, again, do we believe what the Scripture says? Romans 9, going back a couple chapters again, he says this in verses 16 and 17. So then it depends not on human will, not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. How many people don't believe that sentence? It does not depend on human will or exertion, what humans do, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whom he ever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. It's God's will. This is to say, it is God's will, not mine. God is sovereign. If He has saved you, it is by grace through faith and nothing of yourselves. We're tempted to be wise in our own eyes as we compare ourselves to others or even just are full of ourselves or think we can figure God out rather than bowing our knee to His Word. And it's interesting that one thing that will keep us from being wise in our own eyes, from becoming arrogant and full of ourselves, Paul says one thing that will keep us safe from all this is to not be ignorant of the mystery, to not be ignorant of what he's been teaching us here, right? That's verse 25. I don't want you, lest you be wise and proud in your own eyes, I want you to understand the mystery because it will humble you to the dust. It will strip you of yourself. And bring you to your knees in the presence of a sovereign and good God. And so let's walk through a couple of these areas where even the pride was rising up perhaps in the Gentile community in the church. When they began to outnumber their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so Paul says you need to understand. Verse 25, this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, right? A partial hardening is on Israel. That's your second point. There's a partial hardening until the fullness, he says, of the Gentiles has come in, right? So part of what he is saying here, this is God's plan, right? This is part of the thing you need to understand. First of all, it's God's plan, not yours. It's not you Gentiles figuring it all out and being so wise, you know, God's doing something, He, there's a partial hardening and there's a gathering of the Gentiles. But God is doing it. This is what God is doing. He has mercy on whom He wills. He hardens whom He wills. There's a partial hardening on Israel. God is doing it. That's what Paul has been saying. It is God's sovereign work. And so, in verses 28 then, to 32, we're going to jump over a little bit there. Here Paul summarizes this situation that he just stated. The partial hardening and the gathering of the Gentiles. Paul summarizes it so the church will humbly understand how God is uniting Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, 
and how God is uniting them into one church. And God, Jesus, is building His church against the gates of hell. And so in verse 28, He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, right? As regards the gospel, Israel has become enemies for your sake. In other words, the Jews were hardened for the sake of the Gentiles. And when it says they become enemies, it simply means that there's a partial hardening and they're at odds with their God and their Messiah, right? And so they have, it means there's this partial hardening that many have been cut off, but he's making it clear it was for your sake because there is a time now of mercy for the Gentiles. Right? We talked last time about how the proportions have changed, that in the Old Testament was a time of mercy in Israel, and there was a remnant of Gentiles. And in the New Testament, he is saying there's been this partial hardening and cutting off, and now there is a time of mercy. There's a remnant of Jews making up the church and finding Messiah, but there is a time of mercy toward the Gentiles until their full number has come in. So in verses 28 and 29, it says, though as regards the election, they're beloved. The gifts and calling are irrevocable. What I think he's saying here, and I've said it in the last couple of weeks as we walk through this, is this. That the hardening is partial and temporary. Right? Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The pardon, the, that's why he says the election and the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. That there is the same kind of Revival coming for the Jewish nation that even as there's a mass coming to Messiah of the Gentiles, that's going to happen with the Jews too. We'll see in a couple of places we'll talk some more about that. But the gifts and calling are irrevocable. And so too at the present time, part of it is, is already manifest in that Paul is a Jew and he says so too at the present time. Just like in the time of Elijah, there's a remnant chosen by grace. I believe verses 12 and 15 both point to a future. Right now, if their trespass means riches for the world, that is the Jews being cut off in unbelief, that if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Right, that's what he just said until the full measure of Gentiles comes in. And he's saying that the time is coming, just as this has been riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? As if that's a time coming. Verse 15, for their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, but what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That the situation as it is, it's not permanent. It's partial and it's temporary. And then he says, you guys, the Jews and the Gentiles have taken turns being disobedient. That's verses 30 and 31. Right? They've taken turns. Right? In verse 30, he's telling us that in, in the Old Testament times, you know, the the Gentiles were disobedient. And now he says in verse 31, it's the, it's the Jews' term in the New Testament time, the Jews are disobedient. There's a time where there's disobedience for both. And he says, ultimately, it's going to be a time combined mercy for all. All, verse 32, have been disobedient. All have been consigned to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That is Jew and Gentile alike. And when you get to Gentile, it's every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. That's why going back all the way to Romans 3, 22 to 4, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In this context, no distinction means Jew and Gentile. Every human being. But first, you've got to get that 
square for Jew and Gentile. It's every human being. But there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All of them have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified one way by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. There's no distinction. Everybody needs Jesus. And the point of Romans 1-11 to is even the Jews need Jesus. He is their Messiah as He is our Messiah. The hope for the Jewish people is the same as it is for the Gentiles. That's why in verse 23 it says, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. When we understand what God is doing, particularly at that time, Jew and Gentile pride is erased. Both are brought to their knees in humility. Both are brought down. All have sinned. And all need Christ. And if anybody is included, it is God who is at work building His church, gathering a people from all the nations. If you are saved, it is the gift of God by His sovereign mercy. And so He says in verse 26, as it will come to the Jews and all Israel will be saved, the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior is going to come out of Zion, out of Israel. It will be one of His of his people Israel, and he will banish. He will banish ungodliness for Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, with Israel, hardened Israel, as well as Gentiles. My covenant with them is that I will take away their sins through the Deliverer, by the blood of Jesus. And thus he says in verse 25 and 6, in verse 26, thus all Israel will be saved. Now, I don't know if you know that that sentence has been one that has been bandied about and debated for a long time. What does it mean that all Israel will be saved? And there's a lot of, and this is where I think when it comes down to Peter saying that there are those who are ignorant and don't understand his word and twist it to their own destruction. And I think sometimes people can take this in a lot of directions that aren't helpful. But the first thing that I think that we should understand is in verse 25 and 6 together that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Right? And when he says that statement, it is express affirmation that God's purposes are fulfilled. When all Israel is saved, he is saying God's purposes will be fulfilled. Right? That's the first thing that we need to understand about it. God has not rejected His people. His Word has not failed. Right? These are the questions Paul is answering, if you remember, through Romans 9-11. to Since there's been this partial hardening, but a large-scale hardening on Israel, has the covenants failed? Has, has, has His Word failed? Has the promises failed? Right? If you remember in chapter 9, verse 6, it says, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all Israel belong to Israel. Or verse 1 of this chapter. Has God rejected His people? By no means. And that's what he's explaining here. That no, He is not rejected. All Israel will be saved. Now what does He mean? I'll tell you a few things. First, one thing it doesn't mean is that every Israelite will be saved. Some people take that and just say, you know, all is all. But if you do that throughout your Bible, you're going to have massive problems. All does not mean. It's always contextualized. So all Israel... It's not every single Jew We've, he's been doing in the time of Elijah. Don't you remember the entire country was apostate in idolatry and Baal worship? And I reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. They're not all saved. I mean, that's expressly what Paul's been teaching for three chapters. Not all Israel is Israel. 
So it doesn't mean that every one is saved. But what does it mean? Let me give you the two most prominent interpretations. I like them both. I lean toward one. The two most prominent are, number one, the one put forth by Augustine and Calvin. So it's got some weight behind it. Augustine and Calvin both felt like that when all the, 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 the relationship of these sentences, and in verse 26, and in this way, relates back to what he just said. Right? So in verse 25, a partial hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, in this way, all Israel will be saved. If the church is Israel in the New Testament, there's a tree that's Israel, and the unbelieving Jews were broken off, and the wild Gentiles were grafted in. When the fullness of the Gentiles have been grafted in, all Israel is saved. Right? When the full, the full number, the full complement, the fullness of the elect from both Jew and Gentile are all in, all Israel is saved. has some to lend itself to it. I did a lot of reading on this, trying to sort it out for myself and to see what others, but most don't believe that that's what it's actually saying. That it's more likely referring to a future revival. That it refers to a time after, in this way, in other words, that and in this way is not meant to be causative, that it results in this, but there are other ways to interpret the word that's there. The relationship is different. That after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and thus it will be that all Israel will be saved, it'll be their turn. After the fullness of the Gentiles is in, the hardening, that partial hardening will be lifted. And so in verse 25, you can say he's reminding us that the hardening of Israel was both partial and temporary. And after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that hardness will be lifted and, and there will be a right revival and Israel in mass, like the Gentiles at the time of Jesus, will come. There will be a generation. And again, it's not every Jew in a generation and it's not every Jew, but there will be a time, like in the time of the Gentiles, where a large group of Gentiles came in. So if we're talking about the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Jews looks very similar. The fullness of the Gentiles isn't every Gentile or in every generation. It's usually a remnant in a group. And there are times of revival in each country. We can, you can say that here God's grace goes full circle, right? That he started with Israel and with the coming of Christ, they're largely cut off and it hits the Gentiles and makes its way around the world. Every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And the, we have a multi-ethnic global church right now. And it became full circle and ended with a revival among the Jews who initially rejected. I think it would be a beautiful thing. I think it's what he's saying is going to happen. Verse 12, again, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? There is a remnant now, but there is a revival later. And so all Israel, not everyone, but a large-scale conversion. Right now, there's a large-scale unbelief and hardening and only a partial salvation, but soon there will be a large-scale repentance. Not everyone, but partial. Paul is saying there's no room for pride. There's no room to be wise in our own eyes because God is doing something and it has nothing to do with your will and your exertion. It has to do with what He's doing. In his plan, the redemptive history of the world, beginning with Adam and, and Israel all the way through to the end of time, when he brings back 
full circle His grace. Obviously, I disagree with Calvin and Augustine at that point, which is always dangerous to do. But we don't, we don't believe everything everybody says, right? Search the Scriptures yourself. I believe verse 12, verse 15, verse 25 and 26, and all of it points to this idea that Israel, the hardening will one day be lifted. And so Paul then reaches, as we reach our last point here, that our God is unsearchable and inscrutable. Verses 33 to 36, what rich verses. There's a whole sermon here. I'm going to do one point here and wrap us up, but there's, there's probably multiple sermons right here. And the beauty of what Paul is saying, that Paul has been surveying the mysteries of redemption across time and eternity, how God planned it, how God is accomplishing it, how he's worked in Israel, starting from, you know, all the way from Adam and working through Israel and the law and the covenants, the promises, the promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed and, and, and seeing that flow ultimately to the nations, showing how God is saving a people for himself, uniting Jews and Gentiles in his work across the millennia, uniting in, in one new man in Christ, Jew and Gentile in every nation, in every tribe, in every tongue, until all the fullness has come in of Jew and Gentile from around the world. And as he contemplates the final full redemption where he says in 32 that he may have mercy on us all, he bursts into worship. And he bursts into this, it almost, he virtually cries out as he's humbled un, under this revelation this is a revelation of God's glory and His power and of His sovereignty and of His salvation and the mysteries of redemption across the millennia. And as he contemplates it, Paul, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of our God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It is not what I would have thought. It's not the way I was thinking about it. it. But I submit, I humbly, lest I be wise in my own eyes, bend the knee to His Word and let Him tell me who He is and how He has worked and what He is doing. When we study Romans 9-11, to it's not an ivory tower inquiry into abstract ideas. It's a revelation of the mind and the will of God. Who He is, what He's thinking, what He's doing. Spurgeon said, the proper study of God's elect is God. Romans 9 to 11. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name. The nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. In Romans 9-11, to we get a glimpse of those things that he just listed. The person, and the work, and the doings. Oh, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. He is God. Inscrutable means you can't figure it out on your own. It's unknowable on your own. His paths, what He's doing and how He's doing it, are beyond finding out. They're unsearchable and, and His ways are inscrutable. Unless God reveals Himself to us as He does 
His thoughts are higher than ours. We won't reach them. His ways are higher than ours. We won't understand them. But here he tells us, which is a marvelous thing. Remember Jesus in John 15, he says, I don't think this made it to the, he says in John 15, 15, he says, look, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. Because a servant does not know what his master's doing. But you're his friends. And so he's telling us what he's doing. It's the difference between being his servant and being his friend. The friends of God get Romans 9 to 11. Well, they get Romans 1 to 11. And then all the rest of it. But the point being, God is revealing himself to us in the most kind, friendly way. So in verses 34 and 5, we get three rhetorical questions. They're a little bit reminiscent of Job. Each, each of the three correspond to some way to the three forms of pride I talked about at the beginning. Right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Right? Who has been his counselor? No one. Who's given him a gift that, that God should have to pay him back? Who, who does God owe? No one. Right? So they're rhetorical, and the answer is obvious to all of us. Right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? You know, who can figure him out? Right? That's the point of, of what he is saying here. Who could, if God hadn't revealed all of this, who would know his mind? He explains himself to us, which is most extraordinary, that the in, infinite God would explain himself to us. Who has been his counselor? Right? Who are we to question him, to to judge him, to his mind, his will, been his counselor. God, I don't know that you should do it that way. I don't like the way you did it. Maybe in the future you'd think about doing it this way because it sits with me. I like the way that, you know. Lord, I, let me just help you out here. Like, you're, you're, you're missing, you know, if you knew these people, you'd know they'd accept it better if you said this. Right? How, who has been his counselor to judge his mind and his will and his ways? Who has given a gift to God such that God owes us anything? Even an explanation. But in regards to our salvation in particular, he owes us nothing. And the potter has the right over his clay. And like Job, these questions are meant to humble us. Right? These are Job-like questions. Right? They're meant to humble us, right? to see our ignorance, to see our smallness, to see our dependence upon Him. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Into the darkness of our unknowing, into the darkness of our sin, God reveals His sovereign and undeserved grace to us. He shows us His paths through the history of redemption. And from Him, He is the source of all things. All things that exist, all things that happen, all things have meaning because He wills them to exist. And He wills them the way they are. From Him are all things. Through Him, if anything continues to exist, He's the means through which anything happens or exists. If it continues to exist, it's because Hebrews 1.3 is true. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. All things are from Him, and all things are through Him, and all things are to Him. God and His glory is the end of all things. 
Right? What is the chief end of man? Right? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But to glorify God, He is the end of all of our existence. This should be the constant, unchanging posture of our hearts. Of our lives. Right? To God be the glory in how we think and how we live and how we are humbled before Him and how we see Him and how we worship Him. To God be the glory as we contemplate our own salvation. We contemplate what's going on in the world. We contemplate anything. This should be the constant posture. When God reveals Himself to us as who He is, is to God be the glory forever and ever. It's a rebuke to us, my friends. If, if in studying Romans 9 to 11, our eyes glaze over, because when Paul expresses these things, he finds that he cannot contain his worship. He finds that he has to stop before he does another thing and worship. And to, to speak of this God whose mind and will and ways he's been revealing to his people. The mysteries of our redemption, the history of the covenants and the promises, the, the sovereignty and, and the gathering of His people, His grace through Israel, the wonder of our inclusion and the creation of one new per, person in Christ. Tozer says, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God by pulling Him down to what we can fully understand and agree with. And we have substituted for it one so low and so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking and worshiping people. John Stott says, worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Worship without theology, which is what we've been doing, is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Packer always started his theology classes by saying, theology is for doxology. Theology is for worship. Because in theology, it's a study of God. It's our proper study to know Him. And then to respond like Paul does, as we will now in worship. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your inscrutable, unsearchable thoughts and ways. That You are God and we are not. Lest we be wise in our own eyes, would you show yourself to us in all your sovereign glory that we might kneel before you in genuine, humble worship. Humble toward each other. Humbled toward you. Humble in regards to our salvation. Free us now that we may worship with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen.